Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors and add blocks, no custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's bluehost.com slash wondersuite. One of my mentors who said to me, Deepthi, you are shameless when it comes to asking for help. You can go to any person, walk to any person and say, listen, I need this, get me that. And I think that's one of the reasons that you're able to do what you're able to do. Why did I become an executive coach? I saw lots of great people fail to get ahead at work, while their much less talented peers blew right past them. That made me furious, but also curious. What were great people getting wrong? It came down to helping them re-examine what drove success and then helping them make critical shifts one hard truth at a time. Feel like you're doing everything you were told, but you're not moving ahead at work nor having the impact you seek? Then welcome to 97% Effective with Michael Winderoth, where we skip feel-good, happy talk and engage experts in pointed conversations about what it really takes to move the needle at work and your career. So if you feel stalled or frustrated or seek that extra edge as you move to the next level, then look no further. This is the Hard Truths Playbook you never got. Hi, I'm Michael Wenderoth, and you're listening to 97% Effective. How do you reinvent your career and yourself? My guest today moved from working in apparel and fashion in Asia to building a strong personal brand synonymous with innovation and entrepreneurship based out of Switzerland. How did she do it? And what lessons does she share with entrepreneurs seeking to break out? I'm super excited today to welcome Deepti Pahoa, Chief Innovation Officer and author of the forthcoming book, Trailblazer Founders. Deepti, welcome to 97% Effective. Thank you so much. So wonderful introduction. And it's amazing to be on the podcast with you now. You have a strong online presence, very much so. There's a lot out about you on the internet, but what's one interesting thing, Deep D, or important thing about you that we can't find on the internet that you'd like listeners to know about? Well, I wouldn't say you can't find it on the internet. If you research a bit wide enough, you would kind of find it on multiple platforms. Um, But that I'm a decent photographer and I've traveled to 57 countries and lived in 10 cities across three continents in the last 20 years. But what you wouldn't find is maybe that um, I went from not speaking German at all to being close to fluent in German in less than three months. As one of the directors of the first company in Germany that I worked with, 
uh, that was always almost 16 years back. Um, and I was there on a temporary contract to begin with. Um, he told me, we all love you here and appreciate what you have to bring to the table. But you are the only one in this company with 100 plus people who does not speak our language. And I hear from everyone that uh, they find it very difficult to work with you as they have to switch to English to speak to you. Uh, so here is a signed contract right there in front of me, uh, you know, which is a permanent job contract that you could be having here. That was my first job in Germany. But the only condition is that for the next three months, I don't want to hear a word of English from you. And um, yeah, so the next three months, he did not hear a word of English from me and I managed to get that contract. And one year later, I started getting interesting collaborations alliances for all my seniors and then holding monthly meetings in English for everybody to join in. So I don't know if that's something that is interesting for people to know, but yeah, that's, that's one of the things that I would like to share. That's huge reinvention. How did you do this in three months? I just, you know, just kind of engrossed myself in German language. I did not speak a word of English. So everywhere I went, everything I did, I had to speak in German. And not only in the office, uh, what I also started doing was actually going out and, you know, making groups where I could do activities with people with only Germans, like only Germans around. So that was one of the ways that I could actually get to master the language. I wouldn't say the written language was so good, but of course the spoken and the conversation, it became extremely good in just three months. And I watched a lot of TV uh, cartoons, actually, kids cartoons in, in German, which was also another way of, you know, kind of building up your vocabulary and simple language very fast. Total immersion. And I can totally see this coming from you because you are one of the, the most driven and ambitious people I know. Let's, let's start with, with your personal career path. When I went back to look at your career, I, I know you, but I, I wanted to look at this more closely. You started with a, a bachelor in commerce at Delhi University and also had a degree in fashion. And then you spent 15 years in progressive roles in the apparel and fashion industry, first in Asia. Then you shift over to Europe, uh, Germany and Switzerland. And that takes us, you know, ending up with the Swatch Group around mm -hmm. 2019, where you're a, a senior product manager there. And then all of a sudden, when you look on your profile, there's like this explosion. I, I call it kind of this massive disturbance in the force, where suddenly you are freelancing, you are leading very interesting, important projects, MIT, at Stanford, and suddenly start to have this very portfolio aspects to what you're doing at think tanks and advisor, venture fellow. So the, the first question you know, this 15-year, very progressive career up to 2019, what caused you to make that shift? Great question and very interesting one. And I have to say very few people actually go back and see that because some of them are like, oh, you really worked in fashion before? So yeah, great question. Um, so, you know, when you are starting out in your career, you often look to the skills you have, your area of interest and what you see other people doing with that skill. And I've been using my creative side all of my childhood and early grown-up years, um, you know, I was always involved in technically creative activities, sketching, painting, sculpture, ceramic design, craft work, interior design, photography, you name it, I've done it. 
And uh, fashion design at that time seemed like the most enjoyable thing that I could actually get myself into. And then I, I, I would say I, you know, excelled considerably well in that field. Uh, my last corporate job, as you mentioned, was with Swatch Group, where I was actually heading the jewelry division uh, for Calvin Klein, uh, leading product development and branding for 80 plus countries at that time. But as I was growing in these different, um, you know, in different roles, I realized there was a glass ceiling and the creative aspect of my job were often getting in the way of my being seen as someone who could lead businesses and the business side of things. Uh, in the popular words of uh, Ted Kelly of IDEO, uh, of IDEO fame, that designers never got the seat on the table. Their role traditionally has been to design beautiful products. And this frustrated me. Uh, at the same time, I knew that creativity is not limited to technical creative and design stuff, but the principles of design can be leveraged to create innovative products and services in every other field, as you can see with design thinking that everybody is doing these days. And in other fields, need design mindset and cross-industry intelligence much more than any other field. Uh, that's when I did a short course with IDEO uh, on design thinking out of curiosity that changed my way of looking at my career and the immense possibilities that stood in front of me. It also gave me white space to explore and build my brand in a very unique way that 99% of the others who have studied design and work in fashion wouldn't have. So I very dramatically <laughs> quit one day my super comfortable job, a decently paying job in Switzerland and joined Stanford Lead to open my mind to new opportunities and corporate innovation. And that's how all the things that you see, you know, unfolded from there. So one is, I mean, you were doing design thinking and very creative earlier in your career and that course shifted how you're thinking. And then you, you basically applied that to your career is what I'm hearing. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I just started to reinvent using design my own career. Yes. And so that takes us, you mentioned 2019 executive education at Stanford and leaving the very comfortable and well-paying and prestigious position you had. Can you walk us through then kind of what happens there, like how you got to be affiliated with so many entrepreneurship, innovative think tanks, groups, and to now working on your book that's going to be released very soon? Fill in the gaps of some of the key things you did there that, that accelerated that path. Absolutely. I mean, one, I would definitely credit a lot of it to Stanford Lead Program itself. And more than that, to Professor Jeffrey Pfeffer's Building Power to Lead course that I took at that point in time. And now I'm actually working as, on his course and, you know, passing on the legacy to others. Um, I did three very you know, three very focused things, I would say. Like, first thing was the focus area, defining the focus area. Even though I did not have the exact destination, you know, I had planned down a few industries, example, healthcare, finance, and insurance, that I wanted to work in where technology is the driving force of change. And the focus was because of three gaps uh, and the leverage points that I had identified. One was that these industries were in need of innovation, and I live in Switzerland and most companies work in this sector. So it was you know, an important sector here. Uh, design thinking was a new concept in these industries and the possibility of making an impact was greater since there were not many people with my skill in these areas. And thirdly, technology is the key driver for change here. 
even though I don't come from technology background, I come from product development where technology products can be treated the same way as any other product. So I wanted to kind of mix these three, you know, these three insights into building my brand, the, the new brand that I was creating. So that's the first thing, the focus. The second thing that I had to do was building credibility. And I do remember in the very beginning, you know, people would say, yeah, but you have been working in fashion. How and why would you should, you know, give you this kind of work? So I realized pretty early that I need to build credibility and not really take my 15 years of experience as something that is, uh, you know, let's, let's say a baggage, but something that works to my advantage. This because I've done that, I can bring something to your table, which nobody else has sort of a thing. Uh, so in terms of building credibility, um, again, I use Stanford Lead. Um, I, we have these eight-week projects, innovation projects. What I started doing was I started using these Stanford Lead innovation projects for companies like Novartis and digital health startups. Um, and these are very short and sweet eight-week projects to show and deliver what you can do. So that gave me brands, you know, that I've worked with. At the same time, started building networks in a very new area where, you know, I did not have any networks in these areas. So I started building those networks and the credibility of having worked in the field. That is something that I got. The third thing I needed to do was to get associated with building and working on technology products. Um, and what better place to start than MIT Media Labs? So I looked up on MIT professor and research on, you know, on one of his, one of his professors and research on his work and identified him as someone who would be open to work on new project with me, even if I had no prior technical knowledge. I proposed to him a few ideas through LinkedIn um, and I had actually met him on World Economic Forum before and he did not reply to me for some time. But one day I had an email in my in my inbox from him and he said, you have been consistently writing to me. I have this project on pandemic response. Here is the Slack channel to join if you're interested. And that's it. Within one month, I was one of the key people on his project. And uh, he even wrote some papers with me as co-author. They're published in data engineering journals. I started hosting some video on health tech conferences with him, where he would put me in touch with the topmost people in technology and healthcare sector from government to corporates to lead those conversations. I was also invited to co-host some panel discussions at Intelligent Health AI forums. Honestly, from then on, the branding just happened, even without me doing much there. And in one year, people even forgot that I used to work in fashion. And all these networks helped me build my consulting business in health tech, landed me a consulting assignment to be a chief innovation officer for a health tech startup. And I started working with Swiss innovation ecosystems where I led hackathons, uh, leader for Swiss government agencies and the likes. So looking back, it seems easy, but that time it did not seem that easy. <laughs> I mean, that was in the space of a year. I mean, we're talking 2019. You really, full court press really made things happen in that year. Absolutely. And, and you have to, you know, just realize this. It was 2019, middle of 2019 and then 2020. In the middle of pandemic, I made this happen. So most right. people would say, oh, you couldn't do much at that point in time. I completely changed my career, um, you know, and and... And also increase my income at least four times just by doing all this during the pandemic times. Yeah. And, and you've, you've totally flipped a whole bunch of things, right? The pandemic where people were saying things weren't possible. You put those three pieces together to make it possible. 
and what you said earlier here around taking kind of what people might perceive as baggage, many people have of I've done this for 15 years, they're defined by that. You turn that into what can be that my source of advantage that's unique bringing into a new area. I love it. Absolutely love it. So Deepti, you, you've mentioned this focus, building the credibility, and then really getting involved with the tech products. There's huge amount of persistence in there. And, and I want to ask you, from knowing you and, and watching a lot of this transformation that you designed and, and, and executed, I, I would offer that you're quite fearless in terms of <laughs> creating visibility and building that network. And, and so you alluded to it earlier. I think it's a very interesting and illustrative story. Talk about how you met that professor. I know this involves Davos. You are based in Switzerland. Can, can you share what you, what you did there? Absolutely. I can share that. And on the comment that you made that you're fearless, you know, there's one of my mentors who said to me, Deepthi, you are shameless when it comes to asking for help. <laughs> <laughs> you can go to any person, walk to any person and say, listen, I need this, get me that. And I think that's one of the reasons that you're able to do what you're able to do. So, yeah, I mean, have I you always had that? Ha have you always had Actually, that? This is something that I always had. And I think that could be because, um, I, I had to move quite a few places, like from India to Germany and Germany to Switzerland. So, I mean, Germany to Switzerland, I came on my own, but, you know, India to Germany was something where I had to kind of readapt myself. And if I hadn't asked for things, things would have not happened. So I kind mm -hmm. of just became my, my, you know, behavior that I started indulging in. And as I saw that people, you know, responded to that, I was like, okay, this works. I should do more of that. So my my line that I, you know, my quote that I say to anybody and everybody, if something is not working, is like, uh, it doesn't hurt to ask. You know, that's that's one quote that I always use. It doesn't hurt to ask. So I think that's, yeah, that's something which has propelled a lot of things for me in my career. And getting back to your question about Davos. So, and I live in Switzerland and, you know, that was the week that, uh, World Economic Forum was happening in Davos, and it's two hours away from my house in in you know uh, and by train in Switzerland. So one of the things that crossed my mind was one, I want to build an influential network, which is where the best of the best people are involved. And the second thing is uh, I have to build it in in one week, like ten people. Where else and what better place than World Economic Forum? I knew that people pay through their nose to get there. I knew that you just can't get entry into World Economic Forum just like that. But for me, it was just taking the train and saying, you know, the idea was I'll go there, I'll network in the common areas outside. And if and talk about my ambition and aspiration to get inside any of these conferences. And if it happens, it happens. If not, I'll meet interesting people and come back. Um, and... That's what I did. And I you wouldn't believe in that day, I attended three conferences, which were closed door conferences. I met this MIT professor I'm talking about, but I also met three other people who are now my mentors. And one of the most influential people that you could never get to if you actually went through LinkedIn or, you know, even through any of those closed door networks. And just by the audacity of asking them to be my mentor right there, uh, Two of them agreed right on the spot. So yeah. And how did so so you just kind of walk up to them and introduce yourself? What what was the <laughs> the the way that you quickly built that relationship? 
I had done some sort of, uh, you know, research beforehand. It's not like I just went there and, hi, who are you and who am I? I knew which are the people I needed to target. And of course, I did meet with two or three of them, the ones that I had actually thought of, you know, kind of talking to about. And um, so I, I, I took some, you know, backstories to talk to them. Listen, I've seen you here in the TED Talk or I've, you know, done, I've read a lot about your research. And that was like an opening statement. And they got interested because when you're interested in people, people get interested in you. That's that's one thing. And then I had very concrete things to offer. I had certain, whoever was working on whatever project, I was like, listen, you're working on this project. I have the skill. I want to experiment. I was very open about it that I've not done it in the past. I want to experiment with it. And would you be willing to do a collaboration or, uh, you know, I'm happy to help you through some of my networks or through some of my work that I've done in the past. And that seemed to work. And, you know, people were also, because it was the coffee area and lounges yeah. I was speaking to, uh, people, people too, I think they were also a bit uh, less formal and wanted that breather and just lighthearted conversations. And it's like, okay, who is this girl coming here up to me and talking to me? And they just gave me that, that time. You've been listening to 97% Effective with your host, executive coach, Michael Winderoff. If this interview is making you think, make sure to share it with a friend. Now, back to our interview. Brilliant. The audacity. And I would also point out, I know we've talked about design thinking here as well, but you've brought up the experimentation and you've also brought up, you know, when there's constraints, you have a week to go network, where are you going to ratchet it up? And then being bold of thinking about Davos and certain individuals. Uh, I think those are huge, huge lessons. Could you, could you also talk about, you've, you met some of these individuals, formed relationships were helpful. Then you do a very good job at what I would say, you know, creating platforms and communities. I, I know you care a lot about communities, these areas that you're, you're interested in, but that support others and leveraging a lot of these affiliations, MIT, Stanford. Can you share a little bit about that or any thoughts on how the platforms or those communities have, have helped you or helped others in the process? Um. Absolutely. So one of the stories, um, not stories, one of the initiatives that I lead that I really like to share about, and one of the most important thing that I believe I did while navigating my career shift, um, and the one I'm most proud of is I co-founded Lisa, which is the Stanford GSB lead incubator and startup accelerator, as part of Alumni Network of Stanford. Um, and how I got started with that, I, I, I was not the only one. We were a couple of people who started that together, but I, I will share my thinking behind it. Uh, with all of the brilliant minds within the Stanford GSB lead community back in 2020, there was nothing available outside a few classes to inspire innovation and entrepreneurship. And there were also limited options to keep uh, leaders engaged after completing the program um, uh, and networking with other participants. Through Lisa, uh, the lead incubator, we built an ecosystem to support startup founders from uh, from from within lead uh, by engaging the entire lead community in terms of, you know, in, in the form of design facilitation, mentorship, and various workshops to facilitate ideas to MVP and beyond. Uh, we also got the collaboration with Stanford staff and faculty and used Stanford Design Entrepreneurship Curriculum for supporting these founders. Uh, so we, so far, we have incubated 125 plus ideas from, from Stanford GSB community. 
with 50 plus facilitators and 100 plus mentors and other supporters within this ecosystem. And this particular one was a result of the important concept of structural holes. And for those of you who do not know about that concept, you know, structural holes is a concept from social network research. It refers to an empty space between contacts in a person's network. And it means that these contacts do not interact closely, though they may be aware of one another. And there's a gap between two individuals and communities with complementary resources and information, just in case of Lisa, like I'm telling you about. And the theory demonstrates that users occupy the bridging positions uh, between different communities have advantages. And Lisa was that bridge between the lead founders and the expertise available within lead. Uh, so in that aspect, I always consider, you know, like Lisa, when I'm thinking about any search platforms or community building initiatives, I consider strategies that create structures, events or activities that have some sort of permanence, like, you know, that they, they stay on. And uh, they also have some sort of recurring um, visibility and access to the resources that uh, that you can easily lean into and potentially also grow value in time, right? So that is one thing. At the same time, um, another important point here is that when you build these structures and initiatives, um, there's a big but here. Do not try to do or build everything on your own. Get a community involved and let them lead your vision. I think this is what people often forget. They want to lead a vision. They want to lead some project and they are like, I want to do on my own and I am the one who is the, you know, the, the captain of the ship. Um, one, when by doing that, you, you lose out on the collective intelligence of people. And if you are working in innovation, you know how valuable that can be. And two, you don't get the helping hands you need to build your vision and to be effective in building out larger than life projects, you need followers. Uh, and, and I think that's very important again. So just kind of building an ecosystem where the community gets involved. And to design that, you need to craft a purpose, a vision that people will follow, give them a place, community event, or something tangible to operate in where they can contribute. And absolutely don't ever forget to raise people up and give them the credit for what they're helping you build. Uh, because you have to give them space to shine out. Otherwise, they wouldn't stay with you for a long term. So that's how I kind of use use these you know, communities and platforms to build vision that are important to me, for sure. But I also believe are important to all the people who are joining that cause. I love this. So think about network theory, what you're talking about, structural holes, the brokering or bridge roles. And the second point that you brought up about you know, create the ecosystem that allows you to harness kind of that, you know, the whole community wisdom of crowds. Question on that, because you you do see sometimes, and I hear this from some clients when I'm working with them, they kind of put this activity together, but they feel like I set it all up and then someone comes in and takes over and gets all the glory or gets all the benefit where I'm behind the scenes doing all the logistics and the hard work. Um, any reflections on that, how to prevent that from happening or thinking about this in a way that benefits everyone, but still brings benefit to the individual who created it? Once you have that bigger vision, there is a lot of moving parts that need to be 
worked on that you can't do alone. You need people to do that. And there are people who are interested and wanting to associate because it's become a bigger initiative. They want that brand on their on their side. And because of that, they want to contribute. So give them that opportunity of branding as well. I mean, you could always say like, you know, me and, and Edward, you know, we are the two co-founders of Lisa. Deepthi and Edward will always remain co-founders of Lisa. You know, nobody else can take that space. But at the same time, there is an amazing executive leadership team that we've created of about 20 people who do stuff that we both could have never done. Yeah. If we do not highlight their their contributions and we do not let them run the show, then they wouldn't be part of it anyways, right? So I think it's it's a very fine balance of leadership where you have to kind of, you know, walk that thin line between owning the space that you have, but also let others, you know, join in with their contributions. Because if you just lead with your vision and do not take others' inputs, then also it's the collective intelligence you're losing out on. That's what I was you know, kind of referring to before. Yeah, spot on. Question two, because we were talking about 2019 going into the pandemic, where then things happen to happen all virtually. And you made a point here with Davos, like there was that magic of being in person, of connecting or in that particular setting. As you, you know, had to do a lot of things in the virtual setting, are there you probably can't create it entirely, but are there ways you've found to to build strong relationships in a kind of virtual way? So one of the advantages that I've had is that I've worked in brand building for the longest possible time, but in the best sector, which is fashion and luxury. Mm. So you really, I, I really knew how things work, right? But what I had not been doing was using it for myself until I, I quit doing that. Um, so I invested in building a memorable, memorable brand on social media. And yes, it starts with your profile picture. <laughs> My name is synonymous with that girl in yellow picture <laughs> that people are not able to forget. And I should give some credit to my own creativity and interest in photography. I mm. went with a very clear brief to my photographer and said, I want yellow on yellow with my face popping out on LinkedIn. And he was skeptical, not anymore. I even heard from one of my Stanford co-participants recently, I met him in person, that they're using my profile picture to inspire positivity in their offices. And I was like, really? <laughs> so <laughs> I love it. Yeah, yeah <laughs> so that totally stands out, the yellow. So again, playing to your strengths here. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and uh, other than that, yeah, of course, two things I did throughout while navigating the shift that I was making in my career is promote every single thing I was doing on social media, you know, talk about it. Uh, and, uh, at, and secondly, networking relentlessly one-on-one -on -one through Zoom with those who showed interest in what I had to offer um, and or were even vaguely curious about it. And, you know, the power th powerful thing about building a brand is that once you have established it, opportunities and people come to you and they start tagging you in their feeds because they feel you are popular and that's how you kind of have that network effects. Um, so it removes the barrier of proving if you are the right person for any job or opportunity or not. And I think the most important thing here is, which we should be doing in person as well, but also in social media, which a lot of people do not do, is talking about yourself, you know, talking about your accomplishments is a skill. It's a muscle that needs fixing, in my opinion. And I think that one 
thing that I have been investing in trying different mediums on social media has worked the most for me is talking about my accomplishments. And I know it can be cringeworthy, sometimes just blabbering about your own achievements. But trust me, you get better at it. You do get better at it uh, as long as you keep practicing it uh, in different ways and forums and find your own sweet spot. What's a suggestion? Because a lot of people do cringe around talking about themselves. Maybe that's in their companies, out on social media, right? It gets associated with self-promotion, narcissism. And, you know, I think people, some people do this very well. Some people don't do it so well and it still works for them. But would you offer any suggestions? We could go back and look how you've done some of this. I think you've done it thoughtfully. But anything that you would observe that people who really, oh, I'm not going to do it because it's self-promotion. So the two ways of doing it. One is, of course, you have to be very clear of what you want to stand for. Your brand is very important. You don't want to be associated and being, you know, you know, talking about your accomplishments, yes, but not just about anything and everything. You know, you want to be conscientious of what you're talking about and how you want to be perceived in the social media as well. That's a very important thing, right? Uh, second thing is get recommended. You know, you don't have to talk about yourself all the time. Get people to talk about you. And there are ways of doing that. Take part in various uh, forums and, you know, video conferences or, you know, panel discussions and blog posts, etc. where people are writing about you and they tag you and you have every right to reshare those posts, right? Um, and the second thing that when you talk about self-promotion, I, I hate that word. That's, that's actually not self-promotion. By way of doing good work and bringing that forward to the world, what you're actually doing is inspiring other people with what you're doing. And if you're not doing that, you're doing a disservice to yourself and to the community that could follow you because you're not talking enough about what amazing stuff you're doing. So I think it's, it's more about the mindset. Yeah. And I love the reframe. Again, pulling from the design thinking world and, and the way that you've articulated that. Let's shift to your forthcoming book. So again, you are fierce advocate of innovation, building community, entrepreneurship, and the book Trailblazer Founders, Breaking Through Invisible Boundaries. Um, central idea, and what do you want to accomplish with the book? Yeah, so a question that has been at the back of my mind as I've been working extensively with entrepreneurs you know, across various geography, through Lisa, through Swiss Innovation Ecosystem, as well as Mass Challenge, you know, where I'm working with, um, is why certain people are very successful serial entrepreneurs and some others have such great ideas but do not manage to succeed as much. And I'm I'm a leader in innovation management, use design thinking, business model innovation networks, you know, frameworks. Um, and here we claim that most successful businesses and startups had a groundbreaking business model or had that perfect product market fit, you know, the timing was right, or the right value chain, technology, consumer insight, that is all that created the disruptive startups or solutions. Well, all that is true and very valuable, and there is research that shows that works and why. Um, but what we don't talk enough about is who are those people in combination with the right idea, business model, and, and everything else, and what behaviors did they engage in to get to that successful spot of being written about? And all VCs crowding to, crowding to fund this idea. 
So, and, and you know, the top most important thing that VCs look at when they are funding an idea is not the idea. It's the team, the people behind the idea. So I was just interested in that, very curious in that. And um, I wanted to research a bit further on to this to find out if there was lack of diversity in venture capital ecosystem, which there is. You know, it's very closely related to why a certain profile of people get funded, which is typically white, male, uh, you know, who, who tend to get those funding more easily than 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 everybody else. Um, my intuition took me to place that needed unraveling themes that are commonly not talked about again, that yes, there are biases, you know, um, and there are, you know, structural barriers to minority founders and people of color, but the gap in the ecosystem is not just from from, from the side of the venture capital itself, it's also from the founders themselves. And I actually taken a lot of research from Peter Bellamy. I heard his his podcast interview on your on your uh, podcast itself. So a lot of it is what is actually true. The research that he's been doing, and that is kind of coming to light for me in um, in my you know book research right now. I mean, but what do I want to accomplish with it? One, it's rooted firmly in social science research on ways to increase your power as an entrepreneur specifically for but not limited to founders coming from diverse backgrounds uh, by way of empowering them with research, mindset, and skill set. At the same time, it also aims to bring forward um, featured stories of women and minority founders who have had exceptional success as role models and build on identified patterns and behavioral cues that help in overcoming these biases and challenges that are commonly faced by this group. Anything in particular that's jumping out, particularly as you look at this group, uh, women underrepresented groups, anything that's particularly popping out? There are a couple of things, yes, but this one thing, most important finding, even for me, and I discovered this while interviewing people for this book, there was one sentence that was invariably used by almost all my guest features in this book. It's how they describe themselves, you know, quote, unquote. Mm. I actually Mm. never, ever realized that I was any different or that biases even exist. I had heard a lot about it, but I never felt it myself. I was just going about and behaving like everyone else and taking my power. One of them even said, I was never aware of my blackness until someone pointed out to me on the third day of the conference that I am the only black person in such an important technology conference. So this clearly shows that a majority of people are holding themselves back with some self-limiting beliefs. And the ones who are not holding those beliefs are doing considerably better than everybody else. I'm still you know, unraveling this theme and let's see how it evolves. But I thought it was a very important takeaway. Any last final important question that we haven't brought up here that that you want to raise and talk about? You know, to be honest, Michael, you had done such good research on me and all the topics that I've been covering. So I do not have that question that you should be asking me. <laughs> so Deepti, how do people follow you, reach you, see your work? So at this point in time, I'm easily available on LinkedIn. That is really the medium that I use the most. I have also created an author page, which I'm going to link it to you, uh, Michael, which is Deepi Pava author page. Awesome. Thank you so much. It was 
great conversation. Thank you, Deepti. Thank you so much, Michael. It was it was a pleasure and honor to be here. Thank you. Thanks for listening to 97% Effective, where we skip happy talk and help you break through and ascend one hard truth at a time. Help others discover this show. Leave a review and rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you like what you heard, you can get free resources, including the first chapters of Michael's book, Get Promoted, on his website, www.changwinderoth.com. That's www.changwenderoth.com. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.